without announcement, the Sunday school is dismissed. <laughs> Very good. Thank the Lord for the wonderful numbers of girls and boys that we have in our Sunday school. Just a housekeeping item for us this morning before we look into the scripture, and that would be for you to let me know if you're not receiving the CTRN email notices that have been sent out recently. We have information about a variety of individuals. I know of one family that has not received them. So if you've not been getting the notices about Mike or uh, Margie or uh, other notices, please let me know. It's tough to do a negative. Uh, how do you know that you didn't get it if you don't get it? So <clears throat> uh, if you find out that you haven't been receiving these notices, uh, please let me know. And then just a personal note here. I'm really struggling with no tie this morning. Uh, I taught for 41 years, and I really had a hard time when they went to casual Fridays the last five or six years of my career. I didn't feel like I was really being a teacher anymore, but I'm trying to fit in with the 21st century, so that's why you have me with no tie today. Oh, finally, uh, these outlines have been passed out. If you didn't get one, Joe, get one too. You just raise your hand and uh, let him know. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll be looking at the first seven verses today. As we look at the portion in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7, let's first have a review of where we've been in the book. I see three main themes in the book of 1 Peter, which are expanded on as the book develops. The themes for me are our Savior, our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, being born again. Then the second one would be our sojourn, our sojourn as pilgrims as we go through this world. The reason that we become pilgrims is because we are born again in Jesus Christ. We have a new life. We have a new home. We have a new set of values, a new way of looking at things here on the earth, a new way in which to relate to the world. And then the third theme would be the suffering that we will experience because of us being in the family of God, becoming sojourners, pilgrims. We'll explore this in the weeks to come. So that would be the three themes that I say. <clears throat> and let's... Uh, look at these various aspects after we've had a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that we have today to study your word. Thank you for David's prayer, dear Lord. Uh, he has touched our hearts and our minds with the events that surround us internationally, nationally, and then here in the assembly, Lord. Just ask for your help, and we pray this. Uh, I ask for your help in the message today, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to minister and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, our salvation. It says in the first chapter that we're born again. There's an explanation about the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and our belief in him and the benefits that we have from believing in him. It says here in the first few chapters that we're born again, giving us a lively hope or a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It speaks of him as being the son of God. It speaks of him as being once dead but now alive. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is this one in whom we believe. 
<clears throat> and it also shows us, tells us of our benefits that we have. We have salvation, we have an inheritance, we have the Spirit of God living within us. All of these things are there for us, as well as the fact that it gives enlightenment to the Old Testament scriptures, that the Old Testament prophets were looking for this Messiah who would be suffering and then glorified afterwards. It gives us the opportunity to pursue the truth of the Word of God and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Those are the great benefits that we have from believing in Him. Then there are some illustrations that are given by Peter to illuminate. My mother-in-law used to say, Phil, uh, illustrations are windows that bring light to the doctrine that's being taught. And I'll have to admit that over the years, I've remembered the illustrations that people have given far more than the doctrinal points. The doctrinal points tend to come from study. The illustrations tend to stick in your mind. At least they do for me. So Peter gives us these illustrations. The first one is that the Lord Jesus Christ is a lamb without blemish and without spot. It speaks of the fact that he redeemed us with his own precious blood. So the lamb is our substitute, the one who took our place. Just in ancient Egypt, there was a substitutionary lamb for every firstborn there in Egypt. Even now, there is Christ, our Passover, who's been sacrificed for us, who is our substitute. So Peter speaks of the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we have the stone. Evan spent quite a bit of time in his message on the stone. The Lord Jesus Christ is described as the living stone, alive, once was dead. It's a contradiction in terms. How can you have a living stone? It's true of many of the places that the Lord Jesus Christ describes himself. He is both a lamb and a shepherd at the same time. He is fully God and fully man at the same time. He is both the sacrifice and the priest at the same time. So he is a living stone. It is God bringing life to us from that which was dead. The Lord Jesus Christ was alive, dead, and now alive forevermore. And so he is our living stone. He's also the cornerstone. It's described as the one on whom we build. The purpose of a cornerstone is to give alignment, to give direction, to give foundational information for the design of the rest of that building. If the cornerstone is off, then the rest of the building will be off as far as its measurements, as far as its angles are concerned. So the Lord Jesus Christ orients, in our, orients us in our new lives. So we're built on the living stone and our lives are directed by the living stone. But there are two aspects of this living stone. He is a stone of stumbling and one that the builders rejected. And Evan spent quite a bit of time on this. He can either be a blessing to you today because he brings life to you and you become a living stone yourself that's built up into a spiritual house for the Lord Jesus Christ. He can become the cornerstone of your life, the one that directs you and guides you, the one on whom you build your life. Or he can become one that brings stumbling to you. And that stumbling is an eternal stumbling a stumbling that takes place and brings you into an awful destination called hell, away from the presence of God. And that awful place lasts forever. God desires for you to come in contact with the living stone, his son, Jesus Christ, to build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ and be oriented in your building of your life. But if not, he'll become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
And the reason for it is, is that you reject him. Dear ones, I can't help but stop here and ask, what's your relationship to the living stone today? There are only two choices. You don't have the opportunity to go in between. The Lord Jesus Christ has either brought life into your soul, mind, and heart for you to have an eternal destination in heaven, be called a child of God, or you will stumble and fall and forever regret the choice that you have made by not receiving the living stone. I remember Owen Hoffman so clearly, <clears throat> and Owen gave to me the, the very same object lesson where living stones exposed to a particular kind of light and they would glow. And he had this, and I have too, <laughs> this nine compartment area and you put the stones in there and then you turn on the ultraviolet light and only the stones that are inside the cross, those are the only ones that glow. You describe all of the stones to everyone and their different properties and where you find them. It's, it's a fascinating study. And uh, Owen was a true lipidary artist. He had a variety of ways in which he would dress and make the stones. He knew exactly what he was doing and he would describe them. And some of them were extraordinarily beautiful, but then when the light was exposed, they were just as dark as could be. It's only the ones that have the life that's brought by that light. And dear ones, that's the way it is with the Lord Jesus Christ today. You've either received the living stone and are building your life on him, or you've rejected him. You might say, I don't have an act of rejection, Phil. That's not how I am. I know it is also if you don't accept him, you therefore have rejected him. Those are the choices that you have. So, again, these illustrations by Peter. The Lord Jesus Christ is our substitute. He is the stone, and then he is our nation, our, the nation. There is a nation that is uh, made by him, and it's made up of a kingdom of priests, of royal priests. It says here in chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race. Now, that uh, should probably be translated nation. You are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. A kingdom of priests, a kingdom of royal priests. We have Peter speaking to Jewish believers that have become Christians, and so they'd be familiar. In Israel, there was no such thing as a royal priest. It was impossible. The priest only came from one tribe. They only came from one family of that tribe, the family of Aaron. And there was only one priest out of that family, the high priest, who could actually go into the presence of God. So the priesthood was extremely exclusive. The same thing is true of the kings. The kings came only from one tribe, Judah. Only one family, David's. And there was only one king at a time. So once again, the exclusivity of both the priesthood and the kingship, and they absolutely never came together. You never had a priest king. Now, Uzziah tried it. Uzziah was king. He got the censor of a priest. He was started to go toward the temple. The priests were stopping him, and immediately, out on his forehead and then his whole body, came leprosy, and he was a leper till the day he died. God was not going to allow a picture of a royal priest to exist in the nation of Israel because it violated 
the picture he has of his son, Jesus Christ, a king priest, a royal priest. Now there was a royal priest before there was a nation of Israel, Melchizedek. But even here, it's very exclusive. There's only one royal priest. And he was a deliberate picture. It's described for us in Psalm 110, a picture of Jesus Christ. But now, what we have is a royal priesthood. In the church of Jesus Christ, we have king priests that gather together, and we do it on the Lord's Day. That's what we just had the opportunity to do an hour and a half ago. Join together as royal priests, coming together and bringing praises to God. And God now says to us that because of our salvation, we have this opportunity to be a royal priesthood to the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear ones, don't forget the benefits that you have as a child of God. How could we possibly enter the throne room of Queen Elizabeth or of any king without passing through the protocol and the ability to get there? But today, you and I were in the throne room of the Lord Jesus Christ, remembering and celebrating him. Oh, what a privilege it is to have an interview and to bring praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we have our sojourn. Uh, the, this is again review. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles or pilgrims, he says in 2.11. It's telling us how we're to conduct ourselves in this world on our journey to heaven. In this journey, there are areas that God has established as far as lines of authority are concerned. There are lines of authority in heaven and lines of authority here on earth. And Peter is acquainting us with those lines of authority in heaven even in the Trinity, even in the Trinity, co-equal members of the one Godhead, there was a willing submission on the part of the second member of the Godhead to obey his Father. Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. I come to do your will, O God. In the garden, the Lord Jesus Christ, saying to his Father, not my will, but your will be done. That willing submission on his part, that line of authority. Also in heaven, you have a line of authority as far as angelic hosts are concerned. You have an archangel, Michael. You have other orders of angels, cherubim and seraphim. There may be other orders of angels that are implied there in the scripture as you study about angels. There may be other archangels, that also has a possibility. There's order, lines of authority that are there. Here on earth, there are definite lines of authority that we can find. Lines of authority in government, the master-slave-employer-employee relationship. Joe Perio went over those with us last week. Lines of authority in the family, that's what we'll be discussing today. And lines of authority in the church. Peter touches on those in chapter 5. Jack Bainline will be giving us those thoughts. Authority and responsibility, we all participate in all of these lines of authority. All of us, government, employer, employee, family, and church. There are two aspects of the lines of authority that God gives to us. Those who have and exercise authority 
and those who are under and submit to authority. Let's make sure we say that again. In these lines of authority, there are two aspects, those who have and exercise authority and those who are under and submit to authority. This is not hard to understand. There I am in the hallway at school. I've got a bunch of little kids running around me, 10 and 11 year olds, going to their locker. The one kid bangs the locker. Hey, now stop that. You know you aren't supposed to do that. Oh, Dr. Ray, how do you do? Yes, uh, <laughs> there I am. I'm over the kids in authority. All of a sudden, I'm under the principal that's coming to see me. <laughs> and so you're either over or under authority. You're exercising authority. It's, it's something that you understand, and we function in it every day. It's not a mystery to understand about these aspects of authority. There is accountability to God for both aspects of authority. Those who exercise authority are to use it thoughtfully, compassionately, carefully. They are accountable to God for their use of their authority. Those under authority are to submit willingly, cooperatively, even joyfully. They are accountable to God for their submission to authority. This is true in government, it's true in work, it's true in the church, and as today we'll discuss, it's true in the home. God will hold accountable all those who exercise authority in the home. God will hold accountable all those who submit to authority in the home. The burden is not only on the wife and mother to submit. The burden is equally on the husband, father, to thoughtfully, lovingly exercise authority. Authority is not always exercised thoughtfully or properly. Joe showed us that last week in two previous areas of authority, government and employment. There are governments and those that are in authority are not always noble, high-minded, honest, just, there are corrupt, evil, violent governments, kings, presidents, prime ministers, governors, mayors. The teaching we receive from 1 Peter 2 is this. We are to be subject. We are to submit to the governments. This is the will of God for us. The instruction goes even farther. It says here in chapter 2 and verse 17, honor the king, honor the emperor. At the time that Peter writes this letter, the emperor is Nero, who is commencing and perfecting his rounding up, his torture of, and his execution of Christians. And yet we have this instruction because of the godly lines of authority that have been established. In the master-slave or employer-employee relationship, not all bosses are great to work for. Some are ruthless, unfeeling, duplicitous. What does the scripture tell us in 1 Peter 2? Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And it gives us the reason why. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. With that preamble to the thoughts that we have today, we'll see the same thing is said about authority in the home. 
Let's read the passage together. 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the wearing of, of the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good, do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you, of the grace of life, so that your prayers be not hindered. The passage starts out with likewise in verse 1. Just as has been said about situations of authority in connection with government and with business, the very same thing or something very similar to that is about to be said about the home. Wives be subject to your own husbands. Let me emphasize a word there. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. This is not a blanket subjection of all women to all men, nor is it of all wives to all husbands. What there is is a relationship involved between husband and wife. I've gone over the responsibility of husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her in a few months ago in the series that we had in the All in the Family series from Ephesians 5. The relationship of husband and wife there is there, first of all, a husband's sacrificial love for his wife as Christ loved the church. The ideal set before us is Christ loving his bride, the church, and giving himself for her. That is the standard in the marriage relationship of the husband to the wife. There is a line of authority in the marriage relationship as well. The husband is to exercise authority. The wife is to submit to that authority. The husband will be held accountable for his exercise of authority, and the wife will be responsible for her exercise of submission to that authority. The exercise of authority, let me start over. I have two stars by this. The exercise of authority by the husband is bound up in, shaped by, controlled by our love for our wives. The love of our wives, the sacrificial love for our wives will direct and mold the exercise of authority we, we have toward our wives as head of our homes. I really appreciate Dave Reed's comments about this. Here's what he says. Men have authority in the home. This does not mean that men are to boss everyone around or bark out commands like a drill sergeant. This does not mean husbands do not consult their wives in decisions that are made, particularly major decisions that are made. This does not mean husbands and wives cannot function as a team. 
What this does mean is husbands have the responsibility for leadership in the home. The husband will answer to God for failure in this area. Just another housekeeping thing here. Heather's told me about my teacher voice. <laughs> and I've heard from others about uh, my voice. And so uh, I am who I am. <laughs> and I don't want the quality of the tone of voice or the intensity of what I say to in some way mess up what God may have for us to hear today. So uh, I'm preaching, I'm teaching, and uh, bringing it out, but I, I don't want how I intone things to be a stumbling block or a difficulty for you. Let's go over that last statement again. Husbands have the responsibility for leadership in the home the husband will answer to God for failure in this area. Brothers, let's make sure we pause here. How are we doing in fulfilling our loving, caring, thoughtful responsibility as spiritual leaders in our homes? I ask myself, how am I doing in fulfilling my responsibility as the spiritual leader in my home? In the outline, I have not only responsibility, I have opportunity. Responsibility can be kind of a weighty word at times, uh, sort of I've got to do this because it's my responsibility. It's the opportunity that you have to be the leader, to be the one that exercises for authority. God has given you the privilege of lovingly, caringly, thoughtfully exercising authority as the head of that home. How am I doing? I'll submit this to you all. If we husbands are fulfilling our responsibilities of loving our wives as Christ loved the church, giving our sacrificial love to our wives, if we are caringly, thoughtfully being the spiritual leaders in our homes, and as we will see in verse 7, living with our wives in an understanding way and showing her honor, then... What is asked of our wives in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3 will be a much more pleasant and happy responsibility for the wife to fulfill, and that is submitting and respecting her husband. The Holy Spirit through Peter recognizes right away that the responsibility of the wife to submit to her husband may not be an easy one. Peter's very practical here. It may not be easy to submit to your husband. And now he goes on and starts to explain that. It says, likewise, this is still in verse 1, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they, the husbands, see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, the text does not say all submissions to all husbands will be difficult. The text says, some. We thank the Lord for loving husbands who are considerate and thoughtful, sacrificial in their conduct toward their wives. 
We praise the Lord for such husbands. May we husbands ask the Lord to help us become that kind of husband to our wife. The text says, dear Christian wives, please be listening. Even if some do not obey the word. Even if some do not obey the word. Let's stop here. The thrust of the thought in this verse and the following verse is going to be for wives who have a husband that is not a Christian and has not obeyed the word of God to salvation. But you may be married to a Christian who is not obeying the word. I know my wife has been married and is married to a husband who has not always obeyed the word. Through my conduct as a disobedient Christian husband, I have made respectful and submissive responses by my wife to be very difficult at times. I'll ask you Christian brothers that are here today, you Christian husbands, to make an evaluation of your life and conduct and see if you have made submission and respectful responses by your wife difficult. Perhaps there are conversations that need to take place between husband and wife. Perhaps there is confession that needs to be made. Perhaps there is forgiveness that needs to take place. Perhaps there is repentance that's turning around and going in the opposite direction that need to take place. May the holy, loving, gracious, merciful God help us all. May we ask the Lord to show us where we need to change. My impatience, my feeling superior to my wife, my irritations, my aggravations. Do we need to help one another, brothers, and pray and support one another? Do we need to find another brother who is a husband that can pray with us and hold us accountable to one another, to God, and to our wives? I place those thoughts out for your consideration. The text goes on in verse 2. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning of be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning, and then it goes on. The text says that even your husband, who may not be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, will see your respectful, pure behavior and conduct, and that that will be so powerful that your husband will be saved through you and what you do. Submission may be difficult, dear Christian wives. May God help you and enable you in your responsibility to respect and submit to your husband and have your respectful and pure conduct be seen by him. Abe Philip has spoken of his mother coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior and his father observing that and seeing that and responding to that. Am I saying this right, Brother Abe? We had a family here, the Zimmermans. Mary Zimmerman got gloriously and wonderfully saved. Dr. Day was a dentist here in the community. 
Dr. Dave was just as coarse and unpleasant an individual in his language and conduct as could be. And he was invited to come to Owen Hoffman's meetings by his son, Matt, so that Matt will get tickets so that he get a, win a particular prize. So Dave had no interest in this at all, and he was right over on the corner of Holly Tree and Hempstead at the Little Kings, uh, to buy Little Kings at the Pony Keg. <laughs> and who should be there to buy a gallon of milk but Betty McGeehee? We'll see you tonight, won't we, Dave? <laughs> Well, Mary Zimmerman's conduct before her husband, he got saved. He received the Lord Jesus Christ. May you spouses that are here today win your wife, win your husband to the Lord Jesus Christ by the conduct that you have. Now, Peter gives some helpful hints in verses 3 or 4. I'm calling these Peter's helpful hints. <laughs> the simple thought here that I've just read to you. Well, here, let's, let's read. Again, do not let your adorning be external with the braiding of hair, putting on of gold, jewelry, and the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be of the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The simple thought here, it is not your outward appearance that is most important in your priority, your effort, and your expense. The hidden person of your heart, mind, and soul have an imperishable beauty, which is very precious to God and to your husband. Now, please get this right, ladies. Taking time with your appearance, your clothing, your accessories is not being condemned, judged, or dismissed. I'm reluctant to say this, how careful Christian sisters we have to be among yourselves that nothing like this starts to enter into your mind as far as how someone appears, how someone does their hair, how someone has a variety of accessories. Don't let that interfere with the relationship that you have with other sisters in Christ. Please don't let that become an issue. Please don't make it an issue. We thank the Lord for the beauty he has invested in our wives, and we husbands are deeply appreciative of that beauty. We praise the Lord for all he has given us in our wives, but there is a greater, imperishable beauty of the heart which Peter describes as the gentle and quiet spirit that's so very valuable to God. We might ask, how does Peter become such an expert about wives? His wife never gets mentioned in the Gospels. She is in 1 Corinthians. If you look there in chapter 9, you'll find that Peter apparently took his wife on trips after the Lord was risen and after the churches were established. Paul says, you know, I could assert my apostolic authority. I could, I could do a variety of things like other apostles. They bring their wives along. Why, why look, look at different ones. And Cephas brings his wife, or at least that's what's implied there. So there is a relationship with Peter's wife that's there. <clears throat> so we have, dear Christian sisters, thanking the Lord for you and for the beauty that God has given to you both outwardly and inwardly. May we husbands speak of and encourage and appreciate the inward beauty that is spoken of in this passage. 
Perhaps this is a good passage we husbands can discuss with our wives, praising them for their inward beauty and how much we are grateful for it. Peter now gives an Old Testament example. It's an interesting one. It's Sarah in relationship to Abraham. <clears throat> Verse 5, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, small l, Lord. That means master or superintendent of the home. You are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The circumstances of Sarah calling Abraham Lord are extremely interesting. <clears throat> For 12 years, Sarah and Abraham have been on a journey from a really wonderful city called Ur the Chaldees to go out and wander in Canaan where Sarah now lives in a tent. She's so beautiful that at the age of 75 plus, Abraham tells her to lie to Pharaoh to save Abraham's skin. I know you're beautiful. The first thing that's going to happen is you're going to be drawn into Pharaoh's harem. They'll kill me to get you. Say you're my sister. It's a nice compliment to your wife, isn't it? <laughs> lie for me so I can be saved. There has been an over 13-year period of silence from God to Abraham. No word at all after the birth of Ishmael. Twelve years of copious, frequent talks between the Lord and Abraham. Now a 13-year period of silence. And now God speaks. And Sarah, listening at the door of the tent, chuckles at the angel of the Lord who says to Abraham, this time next year you're going to have a child, you're going to have a son. And she laughs to herself at the tent's door. <laughs> me in my old condition, and shall my Lord give me pleasure once again? Speaking of Abraham. Let's listen to what Dave Reed says here. It's interesting that Sarah is used in his example of a submissive wife. Notice that Abraham is not commended here or any other place in Scripture as a model husband. Did you ever notice that? Abraham is commended for his faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham is commended for his great faith, but not for his great treatment of Sarah. This is probably one reason that Sarah is used as Exhibit A. Sarah did not have it easy. There were certainly unideal conditions in her life. Close quote from Dave Reed. This passage we've been looking at is about three situations. The husband that is a Christian and is lovingly thoughtful to his wife and obedient to scripture in his exercise of authority. Then there's the husband that is a Christian but is not being obedient to scripture in relationship with his wife. And then there's the husband that is not a Christian and who is not obedient to scripture. And then there's this final example that's given of Sarah in relationship to Abraham. Let me leave you with this set of thoughts, ladies, for your consideration, your pondering, and your prayer. The issue of abuse comes to mind. It certainly comes to my mind as I've just 
given you these portions of scripture to think about. Abuse, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual abuse. Is a wife to go on in her submission to her husband when she and her children are being abused? I certainly don't find that in this passage. I don't find any permission by the husband to abuse either his wife or his children. I don't find the command or instruction for the wife to submit to abuse by her husband. The husband is to provide leadership, headship for the wife. Nowhere in scripture does the leadership or headship by the husband give him permission to abuse his wife. Jesus Christ does not abuse his bride, the church. It's been stated by Mickey and by me, and I repeat it here this morning. If there is a situation of abuse occurring in a home here in the assembly, the abused person should come to the elders for us to care for you in this local church. Abuse has no place in any of the homes that are a part of our fellowship or of the Lord Jesus Christ Church anywhere. Let's go on to the instruction in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This passage starts off with likewise. Just as there are challenges in submission to government, challenges in submission to employers, and challenges in submission to husbands, there are also challenges for husbands in living with your wife. Some husband-wife relationships are models of good communication, openness, submission, and consideration of each other. There is an Aquila-Priscilla quality to the teamwork, the unity of purpose, and the ministry by this couple an open, steadfast love for one another. We praise God for the marriages and thank the Lord for so many marriages we know of and that are present here in our local church. Not all husband-wife relationships are like this in Christian homes. Dear wives, please take this lovingly. You can be puzzling for we husbands at times. Wives can be mysterious for us. Wives can be exasperating for us. Wives can be aggravating to their husbands. Perhaps, dear wife, you've said to your husband at one time or another, you just don't understand. And dear sister, you are right on target. We men just don't understand. The instruction here for we husbands is to live with your wife in an understanding way. We are to understand our wives. And when we hear the phrase from our wives, you just don't understand, that's our cue, brothers. We are not to throw up our arms and walk away in hopelessness, leaving our wives in tears because we don't understand. When they say that to us, this is our opportunity to draw close to our wives and say something like this. I know I don't understand. I need your help, my dear wife, to help me understand. 
And then, husbands, <laughs> like Myron Thompson said, when you point your finger out, there's three fingers pointing back at you. <clears throat> and then, husbands, stop and listen to what your wife has to say so that you'll learn and understand. Husbands, let's take our time so we can understand our wives. Personal note, how much time I've spent in years past in understanding the various options of the wishbone offense in football. How often I've studied and taught to children the overplaying defense, pass-denying defense in basketball. How much I've pondered the 25 ways in which a runner on third base can get to home, ba uh, to home and score a run in baseball. You ladies are just rolling your eyes about these sports analogies. All right. <clears throat> How often have some of us poured over technical manuals to know what the compression ratio of an engine is? Or looked at the pros and cons of two and a half or three or three and a half inch shotgun shells with either buckshot or birdshot in them? How much we know about the particular qualities of an electrical switch. We can listen and learn about political points of view for hours. We can read detailed histories about battles, generals, and tactics from long ago wars. We can become experts in the areas of charcoal versus LP gas, of direct versus indirect cooking, of marinade versus rubbing in our grilling skills. but to listen to your wife so you might understand her. This living with your wife in an understanding way is not a mysterious or difficult thing to understand. It is difficult to do. It's like losing weight. It's very easy to understand how to lose weight. Eat less. Eat less, embrace hunger, and exercise. There, I've told you, I've just told you how to lose weight. Easy to understand. Difficult to do because of our habits and our desires. To live with our wives in an understanding way is easy to understand, but difficult to do because of our habits and our desires. For us to understand our wives, it will take time and thought. We will have to observe and listen. We'll have to practice. We'll have to try. We'll have to fail. We'll have to try again and learn. We have to do all the things in understanding our wives that you do in any other endeavor where you're trying to understand something. This is not difficult to comprehend. We study things all the time for understanding. Now the clear instruction of scripture here in verse seven is, husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. I am confident as our wives see us devoting time and attention to our living with them in an understanding way, they will be appreciative, affirmative, and encouraging to us. 
Spending time with our wives is not an unpleasant experience. In the Christian husband-wife relationship, we have extra help. Extra help from God the Father. He's there with us, cheering us on. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who's given us his example. We have the Holy Spirit who guides and directs. We have divine coaching that's there available to us all the time to let us live in an understanding way with our wives. We do have habits. Just a couple of examples of habits. When our wives are sharing with us so we can understand, do we interrupt with the phrase, now listen, you're interrupting what your wife says. Do we interrupt with the phrase, I know exactly what you mean. Brothers, you probably don't. Or do we say, I know just how you feel. Probably not. As we, quote, listen to our wives, do we stop listening because we already know what they're going to say? You've heard it before. Do we stop listening because we already know the solution to the problem and the best and easiest way to implement that solution? And along with that, you know all the alternative possibilities and all the consequences of all those possibilities. So I don't need to listen to what she has to say. I have this in big, bold type. We must stop doing this. Let's listen and learn so we can live with our wives in an understanding way. <laughs> Let's listen and learn. Probably one of the most painful things Heather ever shared with me. <laughs> She was pouring out her heart to me. We were in the car together, driving along on Cross County. I mean, literally pouring out her heart. And I was not listening. How in the world can I understand if I don't listen? There are two aspects of living in an understanding way with our wives listed for us in verse 7. Live with your wife, showing her honor. The woman is an eager vessel, and since she is an heir of life with you. The weaker vessel. Brothers, our wives are precious to us, valuable. That word honor means that they are precious, valuable. Perhaps you can hear your wife crying and you're trying to get her to stop crying. Oh, don't cry. Don't cry. No, no, no. See, those tears that she's crying are helping us understand her and see how valuable she is to us. That something has touched her heart so sensitively that the tears flow. That is a time of instruction for you and me in understanding who she is. A phrase that's heard in our home occasionally. Quick, come here, kill the spider, will you please? <laughs> that's not an inconvenience for me. That's giving me insight into my wife. Can you open this jar for me? 
The preciousness of our wives is the weaker vessel. Now I've been talking about physical weakness here. It's a general truth. There are some exceptionally physically strong women. I realize that. But there is the aspect of sensitivity on the part of our wives as well. They have an empathy and a sympathy that is often lacking or missing entirely from we husbands. Praise the Lord. God is giving us a great gift through the sensitivity of our wives. As we live with them in an understanding way, we are getting an understanding that you and I lack, dear husbands, in ourselves. Praise God for the preciousness, how valuable our wives are. Praise the Lord for the honor and value that we can give to them. for They're helping us to understand. Sweetheart, thank you for helping me to understand that person and how they must be feeling and thinking at this time in their lives. Can we say that to our wives? Have we said that to our wives? Have we shown them that we're seeking to live with them in an understanding way? This past Mother's Day, I spoke about the complications of people's feelings and thoughts in connection with Mother's Day. I really received that thought from my wife as I was going to give the flowers away. Elizabeth Mang came up to me afterwards and she expressed her appreciation for saying something about the complicated thoughts that came on Mother's Day. And she spoke to me about some wives and some women who would like to be mothers but are unable to. It's something that I really had not considered at all. How I thank the Lord for these dear, precious women that have helped me understand. Our wives are the weaker vessel, but they're also heirs of the grace of life. Our wives should be honored and valuable and precious to us because they are equal heirs with us in the grace of life. Because we husbands have been given authority and headship in our homes, that doesn't suddenly make us smarter, more insightful, more independent of our wives as we go along on our pilgrim sojourn and our walk toward heaven. Our wives are equally with us in the pilgrim journey. It says so right here. <clears throat> Since they are heirs with you in eternal life, they have experiences, they have knowledge, they have help, they have support, they have encouragement, they have contributions for us husbands as we go along toward our heavenly home. <clears throat> I think some of you think, Phil, you're getting awfully close to the e uh, equalitarian point of view. No, I'm a complementarian. I know we have roles. I know we have points of view that God has assigned, and I believe in those. But as far as being an heir of eternal life and the grace of life, I am just the same as my wife and every other woman that's here. There is no male or female as far as salvation is concerned. We are all brought into the family of God by the grace of God. And these women, our wives, they have a point of view that give us instruction and information that we otherwise would not have. Our wives have things to teach us about their thoughts in anticipation of their receiving their heavenly reward. We have things to learn from our wives that their hearts are focused on. As they are sending their treasure on ahead to heaven, we husbands can find 
the preciousness, the value, and the honor that's to be discovered in our wives. Husbands, honor this fellow pilgrim, this fellow heir of the grace of life as we walk along side by side, hand in hand, on our way to a glorious heavenly home. Now I realize in this message today there have been a lot of particulars. God will hold wives and husbands accountable for our submission to authority and our exercising authority in our homes. May God bless and help us as we live with one another for God's glory and praise in our mutual help to one another in our marriage relationship. Mike Merritt was to have spoken next Sunday. I'm really going to miss Mike's exposition. I'm taking the next portion of scripture here, verses 8 through 12. And this is about an all-inclusive statement about all our lives together as we help one another on our pilgrim sojourn. Please pray for me as I prepare that message. Let's pray together, please. Dear Father, these passages uh, of Scripture, for whatever reason, they seem to be uh, difficult. And uh, I've given reasons why it's been difficult <laughs> from my own conduct and from my own experience. Dear God, help us to help we husbands to change so that we are lovingly attentive and understanding of our wives. And Dear Lord, help the wives. It's been evident here in this passage that for some, submission is difficult. Assure them, dear God, of your loving appreciation for their submission. And dear Lord, we would pray that as we husbands are understanding and loving our wives, that this issue of submission would be an extremely rare event that the conflicts would not be there, that things would be settled beforehand, that we've consulted and lovingly talked things over. But when the time for submission comes, that a wife, a wife would willingly and even joyfully submit to her husband. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.